Welcome to Ted's Podagogy. For this episode, I'm joined by Dave Trotman, Professor of Education Policy at Newman University, Birmingham, and Stan Tucker, Professor of Education Policy, also at Newman University, Birmingham, and Editor of Pastoral Care and Education. Now the summer term is upon us, it seems an opportune time to get uh, these two guys in to discuss the issues, not just around primary to secondary transition, but phase and sector, tra- sector transitions too. Um, hello, both of you. Hi. Thanks for coming in. I think it would be useful to start if we can sort of define what transition is. Yeah, sure. sure. I, think, I think the important thing really is to kind of grab the name mm-hmm. and think about the name. So transition means more than just a kind of minor change in your life. Transition means there's something major going to going to happen to you. Yeah. And um, of course, part of the problem is that for if, if people if if it's not explained to children what this next step's about and if it's not explained well mm. then they will make up as it were their own they have their own perceptions their own views about what it will be like so there's a lot of myths attached to this idea of transition but transition means change and it means fundamental change and for children in primary to secondary it clearly means a group of children moving from what is, a, is a, an essentially a caring relationship within the kind of the the, the primary area mm-hmm. to a much bigger school where the the whole pedagogical approach has changed. Suddenly, we're subject-based individual children moving around huge spaces, much bigger than when they where they came from, and of course, the whole kind of pedagogical approach changes very much to transmission rather than the kind of I'm going to say discovery kind of approaches which are adopting primary and so we're talking about transition as a not just a, a physical move but we need to understand transition as, a, as an emotional move as a contextual move a conceptual move even absolutely and I think the one thing that gets eclipsed in that process of the physical move from primary phase to secondary phase education is the transitions in young people's lives biologically in terms of identity in terms of orientation friendships and social groups so they're actually moving from much simpler environments one might argue to much more complex environments as they go through adolescence and the attendant pressures not simply in terms of who they are and what they are but also the level of expectation that's placed upon them, either in terms of their their personal identity, but compounded by the fact that there's the expectation from schools in terms of academic performance. So we're sort of at the at the very point their their personal life and social life is getting more complex. We're introducing a more complex environment in which that should happen. Absolutely. Okay, that that does sound quite crazy when you put it that way. <laughs> um, so I think. Every year, I mean, I've been at TES for six years now, and every year we sort of run the same feature. Why is transition still a problem? Mm. And in, in the mind of that is, is, is a primary to secondary transition. We are going to deal with some other transitions later. But for the moment, let's look at the primary and secondary transition. No doubt there's been some improvements in the past five, ten years in how transition happens. I know it's much, you know it's much more spoken about now than it perhaps was in the past. But still, we seem to have the same problems of children who, who transfer from a primary to a secondary setting and, and something goes wrong. Is that because the research is not there or is that because the application is wrong? I mean, should we look at the research first and see, okay, what do we know from the research about why things go wrong and, and whether it's a UK-specific mm. problem? <laughs> yeah. 
Well, first of all, there is a modest range of research that's been conducted over quite a period of time. So you can go back, you know, over a good number of years and find research on transition. And certainly speaking to colleagues in primary and secondary schools, the challenges around transition are well known and well rehearsed. And we do see very good examples of very good practice in secondary schools who've um, made all sorts of arrangements uh, for transfer for year seven, both structurally in terms of curriculum, in terms of pedagogy, and done that very successfully. But their challenges is that they're working in two very, very different structural environments. As, as Stan was saying, these, these are almost like an organisational fracture which they're having to, to, to deal with. Now the other point is, is that for some young people is that transitioned into secondary school from primary phase is a really exciting time. Mm. It's going into the big school with new challenges, new opportunities, etc. And for some of those students, that excitement and, and energy is really important. But for some of the most vulnerable students who find that transition di difficult, they actually never recover from it. It's really, really difficult. So the, the tale of either underachievement leading to pupil exclusion, behavioural issues, all the attendant problems, can be traced very early on. And there are a number of American studies which are even more dramatic than the ones perhaps that are just unfolding in the UK now of uh, students who struggle in uh, primary education and making that reportage when they're in prison. Okay. So, the, yeah, and it's that, it is that mm. dramatic to say that if when asked the question, where did you find your life going off the rails? Well, there are all sorts of... Uh, uh, they uh, can actually think of that transition. They can life. identify Absolutely. moments in, in primary school to secondary where that went wrong for them. It, it might be useful just to, to use one uh, piece of research which they wasn't involved in, but I, I was involved in, uh, with a colleague. And um, what that did was... Um, a secondary school approached me and, and, and basically begged the question, we have a group of children who have arrived here from um, primary school with excellent SATS results. Mm -hmm. And it was a group of about, so the, the school is around about 1,500, 1,700 children. Um, and it was a group of around about 20 children. And we spent uh, two terms talking directly to those children and actually working alongside them and, and alongside them and trying to give them some mentoring support but what 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 I was left with and I'm still left with now is the idea that these children had lost their way that the, the, the secondary school was such a, a huge entity mm. with a different as Dave said with a different structure but different demands so you have to be able to move around. You have to understand the timetable to begin with. We almost kind of give that, oh, well, everybody will understand the timetable, yeah. won't they? Yeah. Well, will they? It's a huge place. And if you get lost once, you, it may sound very trivial, but it may, be, it may have a major impact on you because you may then begin to think, how am I ever going to find my way around this place? I guess you're thinking in your lessons as well, 10 minutes before the lesson, how do I... How do I get to the next uh, place? You're missing the learning because you're... Well, absolutely. Well, you, you you're compartmentalising time for yeah, a start, for yeah. learning, you're learning, and, and you know, secondary teachers recognise this problem and it's been in the research literature for years, but you know, you're parceling up particular learning experiences into time-bound um, uh, packages, if you like, which are in themselves problematic. Mm. So it's, it's compounded by not just the social dynamics, the interpersonal dynamics, but a particular conception of learning, which one might argue, and I would be amongst those, I think Stan similarly, that, that, that it's simply not fit for purpose anymore. Do you think those um, schools, the secondary schools, 
you know, lots of technology schools now will, will put things in place like um, taste of weeks even now, yeah. taste of days, and yeah. the primary schools are running, trying to run timetables. That's obviously an effort to, to try and minimise the disruption. But from what you're saying, there's a systemic problem. Do they recognise that, that, that and think, I can't change it? Or is that even not on their radar? That the, Yeah, I think there's tensions here for them, absolutely. Yeah. Because the school, the secondary school runs, doesn't essentially by its timetable, mm. its mm. departmental structures, its geography is that bit and, and, and maths is this bit, etc., etc. Um, from the child's point of view, that switch is absolutely enormous mm. because they've come from a place where the world wasn't education wasn't laid out in that way. You know, yes, they had they had they had English and they had maths and blah blah blah, whatever else. But the important thing is the way in pedagogically how subjects are delivered at primary and at secondary is so different that for many children they don't cope with that difference in teaching. I'm not saying all teaching is transmission because it's not, but a significant amount of, of, of secondary teaching has to be about transmission because it's about a curriculum, a syllabus and a public examination and so it has to be like that to some degree. So you're saying that the, not that the secondary school is wrong to do that, but that but the, the primary, just the fact that the primary and secondary are so different and that the primary don't feel that they can change to a more secondary model and the secondary don't feel, believe they can change to a more yeah. primary model. There's, there's in a sense a different set of expectations yeah. both from government yeah. ministers and from parents about yeah. what these two environments yeah. do. Mm. And whilst that's problematic in itself, the research when we've talked to a lot of young children, young people, uh, in terms of both their experiences in school and transition, is that this is massively compounded by the accent emphasis, if you like, on uh, performativity and high stakes testing. Okay. And from our research, it's that feature that becomes the most troubling aspect of it. If, as I think there's an opportunity to do, it is to free up the curriculum for it to be much more personalised, much more innovative uh, for those schools that are equipped to do it, and of course there's a cost to doing that, that's one step forward, but I think most uh, groups in research groups, both um, professional groups, recognise the high stakes testing and the massive emphasis on performativity in secondary schools is where the root of the problem is. Is that a bigger shift from when a, a four-year-old starts school, is the difference between a home life and a EYFS setting bigger than a primary to secondary shift, if that makes sense? Well, if I just might answer that part, is that I think one, one of, there's no question about it that those forces of performativity are present in, in uh, early years and in primary schools. The issue for that shift into secondary is that when you've lived with that culture for the period of time that you have, you start to become defined educationally in the terms of your, your, your educational outcome and okay. output. And that's, not, and that's again not to, to lay the blame squarely at the foot of teachers who are doing a very, very difficult job, but it is to be quite very, very critical of policy processes which are in many ways unique to England and the UK that makes that emphasis on educational outcome in the most bluntest of terms. And I think anybody coming from any other, any, any other part of the world or any other planet for that matter would look at this as a really bizarre way in which to conduct education where young people then define themselves by the most narrowest bandwidth of educational outcome. And it's interesting if we look at EYFS, how that in itself has changed. Mm. 
you know, the, <laughs> the kind of idea of this far more structured relationship to teaching between the child and the young person. Where do you position, sorry, the child and the teacher, where do you position play, for example? We were just talking, uh, coming here today, a lot of a lot of organisations that used to just be called nurseries are now called nurseries and preschools. Yeah. So it's some idea that education has to start right back, you know, kind of with the four-year-old. Mm. Now that's, you know, there could be a, we could have a discussion about that. But what we know is that in other countries, primary education doesn't start for until they're six yeah. or seven years mm. old. So we've got a, we've got a kind of idea here floating in our kind of collective heads about the value of education and how how some activities are clearly more important than others so play at the EFS stage although pl I'm not saying play isn't seen as important I think it's much less less embedded into the EYFS and those early early years in in uh, primary school and and slowly what we begin to see as we move up from primary, th uh, sorry, through from uh, uh, early years to, to primary to mm -hmm. secondary is an upping of the ante about the kinds of things that Dave's just been talking about, about performativity, about performance, about SATs. So all of the, the kind of philosophical position of education has shifted. And, that's, and we, we, we would argue that, we've argued that in our papers, that we've, our books that we've had published. We see this kind of um, what we call, Dave, quite rightly, we, 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 we term performativity, um, but it's pressure. It's real pressure. So the, the children in primary are experiencing pressures with SATs, immense pressures. Um, we have a government that won't get rid of that test in, the, in England. In other countries, they've got rid of that test. Again, we could have a debate about that, but probably not now. Um, you're beginning to, to ratch up that educational ante from around about, you know, kind of two or three years away from the end of primary school. It sounds like then in that, in, if we're in that sort of, you know, if we take that as given that this is happening and that there's a systemic structural problem here, how effective have you seen in the research that the efforts that are being made are? I mean, our taster days, our, uh, you know, a week's experience, our mm. tutoring, uh, are we sort of chipping away at a massive problem here or are we actually making a difference? Well, we've, we've had for a long time, again, I think potentially unique English problem of the taster event mm. uh, and not just restricted to secondary schools, primary schools, but also in other sectors of education where it's education by inoculation. You know, we have a creativity day. <laughs> Which you know the, the the sense of that in itself, you know the the the, the, the irony of it is is really kind of really disturbing in so many ways. So yeah, a lot of a lot of um, educationalists, teachers, schools are putting sticking plasters over a problem because they've got to because they need to. Mm. Um, where as you to use your word, there's a more systemic problem. And then when we turn to the literature of other countries, I mean, one, one of the most notable ones that many people will turn to is the work of Parsi Solberg on the Finnish experience that sets out the, uh, the educational reform project there very eloquently, shows a radically different approach to education that isn't kind of some kind of um, either um, crazy notion of what education might look like or an ill-informed knee-jerk response, but a, a very, very systematic and coherent review of policy, of philosophies of education, of structural arrangements, the politics that, that, that necessarily surround that. 
And when you look at that literature, I have to say the English experience, and I'm specifically about saying English, it could be the UK experience too, but I'm talking specifically about the English experience, seems increasingly at odds with that sort of thinking. Does the transition in in different countries, is it worse than ours? Is it better? I mean, is, is there's the Finnish model fixed transition by having a tackling the systemic problems between the two, differences between the two? Well, I think they have a better understanding of the continuities of education. Yeah. So when we talk about transition, we want to talk about continuities, we want mm -hmm. to talk about support. Um, and and for sure, all countries have some form of transition problem. And you, if we only have to, we have to have a most cursory glance of international studies, and you see that people, this is a topic that's, that's present in, in in much of the developing world and beyond. So um, it's not to say that that the, the, the English experience is is particularly um, pr pronounced in that way, but I think it is problematic for the reasons that we've described. Particularly, which we initially we haven't talked about, that the resourcing for particularly for secondary schools and the kind of experiences that young people are encountering now is simply not there. So Do you think then that they're not pointless those taster days and stuff, but if it leads to a belief that you're fixing transition, then it becomes problematic in the sense that you're doing a little bit to help uh, the situation. But yeah, it's. It, I think it's it's Dave's point. It's Dave's point, really. Um, it's an injection. It's the idea that if you if I spend a few days in this secondary school, somehow or other, this will all work for me. Mm. And I think what we've got to get into is that by the end of primary school, we can identify a number of very vulnerable young people, mm. and these are the significant group of young people who find the secondary experience what it is the difficulties they they multiply in secondary and we could take you on the path of any number of kids who we talked to we've talked to well over 200 kids so a lot of young people we talked to what that began it began back in primary school and some difficulties and problems that emerged in those kind of last years at primary school and secondary school and, and the structures and the, the, the systemic elements of secondary school just made those problems worse and so that's the that's what we need to 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 understand here i'm not saying that all vulnerable kids don't cope with transition because that'd be the wrong thing to say but what we do know is that for many vulnerable young people and we don't put social class on this because we've had experiences yeah. of talking to middle class kids as well as as what we might call working class kids just for the sense of an easy I mean, I was, I was going to conversation say, I mean when you're saying vulnerable kids do we do we know who the most vulnerable kids are who are going up and and if so do we know the risk factors who 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 is who is in that group usually on our, on average yeah i mean it's it's fairly quick to point to is that if you have a special educational need you're likely to find it much more difficult mm -hmm. numerous studies related to the ethnicity of students okay um, the, for the reasons that we've said, those students who are susceptible to the pressures that are now placed upon them, either through school and home in combination. Our most recent research is pointing to young women who are finding the, uh, in, in this sense, um, when I say young women, we're talking across all of those class boundaries. Uh, but exposing now, as Stan has just mentioned, in terms of class, the uh, children and middle class parents who are finding the pressures of school in terms of their expectations in largely affluent and middle class areas extremely problematic for mm. them.
So, it's so not increasing just, senses of anxiety and so depression. depression. So it's not just the, um, the kids who have got a behaviour issue or behaviour challenges and they give the secondary school a nod and say, yeah. this one needs a, a bit yeah. of extra help. You're talking about people that may be completely off the radar of year six teacher. Yeah. Uh, this, is, this is absolutely part of the, the, the significant problem for us is that because we've been working in alternative provision on a number of our research studies for quite a bit of time now, one of the challenges of taking young people out of schools into alternative provision, the, the benefits that are considerable in some cases, one of the problems is they assume, the, 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 the model assumes that young people can be repaired and put back into school. Mm. And the crucial part of this, it mm. places the responsibility for that behaviour on the, on the child, not on the system. Okay. And that's where we need to change the polarity is rather than simply thinking that the, the difficulty that we have is some kind of um, uh, psychological, and there may be those, but maybe uh, but specifically a particular uh, problematic area of pupil behaviour without acknowledging the problems within the school makeup. And within that, of course, you've got the Ofsted pressure that, that, that you know, kind of weighs heavy on all schools. And, and this, this many of these young people we're talking about are not the kind that are going to kind of um, help push a school at the league tables. Mm. If anything, they're going to do the opposite. Mm. Yeah. But these are these are some of the kids with some of the most complex needs. And one thing I think we 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 have discovered is that where we see um, well focused, well developed, multi professional approaches and interventions. Yeah. So with multi professional teams supporting these young people then that's when you're more likely to be able to resolve some of the difficulties. So it's more than behaviour, it, it'll be some kids are suicidal, some kids are depressed, you know, it's all of the range of kind of, 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 of things that we would, as adults, we would and should be concerned about. Yeah. So that, 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 without doubt, where we have that kind of intervention, Works better, but obviously the school's budgets and CAM budgets. I'm going to make that cut. Yeah, exactly that point. Ed Sykes and it's yeah, interesting yeah, yeah. in Birmingham. My colleague um, Tim Boyce, who's involved with, who runs the Birmingham Educational Partnership Partnerships, which is involved with schools and um, uh, primary and secondary with vulnerable children across Birmingham. They they've embarked on a new project now that recognises that point in a sense that the resources are limited to support vulnerable young people. So how can we give some teachers, not all teachers in the school, but some teachers, some level of skills that will help them to support more effectively vulnerable young people? And that's an interesting project. It's only just beginning. Be interesting to see how that plays out. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And plays out on a, on a teacher, because I guess if you're... If you have a New Year 7 coming in and you, you have, well, we'll talk about how much data you might have on that child in a yep. minute, but let's say you know they have a problem and, and there, is a, there is a responsibility given on you to play part of a role of any of those multidisciplinary yes. services. What well-being impact does that have on that teacher? What, mm -hmm. you know, how much, how much guilt do they start to internalise about being... Well, you, and th this is, so I'm just finished that yeah. point. Yeah. Part of the project is about offering the teacher who's doing this work the kind of support that a social worker would receive in terms of supervision. supervision yeah. So we get a different kind of agenda of, 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 uh, of education for the teacher. It's saying, 
you may be carrying, I don't know, a caseload of a dozen kids in the school. They're all complex, they're all difficult. You can't sleep at night because they're all in your head and they're all bouncing around. You need some kind of other systems to help you as the teachers to, to work effectively. Yeah. And, and the parallel to that, of course, is we take, it takes us right into the domain of how we train teachers and what those edu mm. teacher education programs look like. Yeah. And, of course, what we're getting is the absolute analogue of the experience we've described where teacher education programmes are heavily focused on a particular form of curriculum where much of the stuff around educational psychology, the sociology of education, of understanding more, much more complex processes of children's lives are pretty much eclipsed in, in those educational um, training programmes. So it comes right back to not only the initial teacher education of, 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 of future teachers, but also their continuing professional development. How, how quickly, do, if, if that support's not in place, how quickly does that secondary experience become critical um, I think we, we used it when we had a chat before this podcast we used the word, word spiral yeah and how quickly does that come into play is that is that consistent across countries I does it is it accelerated in our system mm. or is the US system or the German system can you spot when transition fails the the, 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 the spiral down happens at the same rate well I think what we're seeing now in and this is a kind of very tentative response to research in its in its uh, early part is not only the amplification and increase in number of pupil referrals for mental health needs to alternative provision there are fair bits of research coming out in that domain now but this is amplifying and getting faster okay. you make a, a comparison here between the UK and the states we mentioned previously that when it when it fails in its most dramatic way is those reports of adult prisoners talking about where their educational experiences went wrong very early on. In some of the literature in the States, they talk about the school to prison pipeline. Mm. They don't actually have a name for it. Mm. That school environments are simply not conducive for certain communities in terms of enabling greater life chances for them. So it's, it's a big amplified problem in that sense. Um, but certainly the early, you know, the, 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 the early, early parts of our research and, and to be treated with caution is suggesting that this is getting bigger and it's getting faster. And as I say, for the reasons that we've, we've already mentioned, issues around personal anxieties, issues around identity. We don't do a huge amount of research in the area of social media, but we know that this is now playing a significant part in how young people construct their lives. Should we be expecting... A spike then, an increasing spike in year seven of exclusions, referrals, um, homeschooling, this type of, I guess, symptom of a transition problem. Are we, are we expecting that, that, that sign? Well, I think if we looked at, for example, the Ofsted um, data around uh, uh, school exclusion, that points to an increasing level of exclusion. Mm. Um, you have to read something into that more than... than more than behavioural difficulties or naughty children. Mm. There's there's much more under those 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 statistics than than that. I'm not mm. I'm not saying Ofsted don't do any of that work, but for us, what we what we're beginning to try to construct um, is this idea of a spiral, as it were, downwards from fairly mild anxiety through various stages of depression and otherwise down to actual attempted 
thinking about suicide. Self-harm and suicide. And, yeah. we, and we've got data which supports yep. exactly that spiral. And, and I guess we, we can look at transition as, oh, you know, snowflakes can't really cope with it. You know, this, this, mm. this narrative that's coming out, it's this trivial thing they should be able to cope. And if, if they are, they're going to have to cope eventually. So yeah. why not at the end? Get on with it. Yeah. And I guess what you're saying is not only is that very dangerous, but are we mistaking an adult ability to adapt with an 11 year old's mm. ability to adapt? Yeah. Or do adults, you know, when you start a new job, I think, I think if I think about what starting a new job, my anxiety is very high. Yeah. Um, but are adults better able to cope with it than an 11 year old? Well, so just to go back one step is that some adults do absolutely recognise the usefulness of, of vulnerable young people. And we know the correlations now between alternative provision and the grooming of young people for gang membership. Mm. That data is now starting to be revealed. So that, that there are some adults that are very interested mm. in what, what excluded young people can, can offer. And we've got this parallel problem of off-rolling, that's the term that we've used now, which, which Ofsted are turning their attention to. But to return to the question about whether adults are, are better able at coping with transition, is that I think there are some adults who are actually extremely poor at transition. Mm. Um, you know, my, yeah. you know, when we come to management of change and all of that sort of stuff in the literature, um, I just think we've got to be much, much better at it. And as we, from the, the outset of our conversation, we, we identified very early on that the emotional context is really, really important. Mm -hmm. The the affective realm that they talk about in psychology. Uh, that not only is that important for the sense of, of self-identity, of, of, of care, of humanity, but it has a direct and profound impact on anybody's ability to learn stuff. Mm. We know that we have an emotional engagement in learning. We know when we're not interested in learning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not everybody wants to learn. And do you find when you look at the literature, if, if age is a, is a factor and it, the vulnerability gets... Uh, less as you get older? I mean, are children at their most vulnerable about change at the age of four or five? Is that transition from home to school or home to preschool if they start earlier at the age of three worse than 11 to 12? And is that again worse 16 to 17 in terms of going to college? I think these are just different transitions. Mm -hmm. So the kind of stuff that we've got, and we just talk a little bit about so primary to secondary, there's a particular transition point. We've got other transition points as kids move through secondary. They move towards the kind of public exams. We've had kids talking to us who have, and it's a very good example, we've done absolutely disastrously in the first three years in school, but somehow have a view that when they get to this next stage, whatever this next stage is in their heads, they'll step up. Okay. They'll do the business at the next stage. I'll forget all of that nonsense that I've been involved in there. I'll do the business at the, at the next stage. And of course, it doesn't happen. Yeah. So we could trace, we've got, we've got a lot of lit, uh, research now which traces kids through, not only then from, from primary to secondary, but secondary to FE yeah, like as well. Provision, yeah. So we, mm. uh, and of course, <laughs> Ofsted rightly, the government rightly are concerned about the idea of some kids not being neat, you know, not not in education and training. Yeah. Um, well, that's a neat, that's very nice. That's a nice little parcel, and let's be concerned about those kids. But with what we need is a more nuanced view of what this group of kids are that struggle from not only right through secondary, but then struggle into 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 FE as well. Do you have kids that? have a long-term impact of a poor transition primary to secondary and it impacts yeah. on 
But do you also have kids who had a good transition, mm. coped, but don't cope at 16 with the transition to further education or from further education to university? Are we, is, is the problem more complex than that kid always struggles with transitions? And is it more that it's highly individualistic and, mm. and context dependent, I guess? Yeah. I think the issue of the transition is about maximising opportunities, about personalisation. There's an assumption now that most young people will go to university, which, you know, many years ago that wasn't the case. Mm. Many countries have a much more refined and developed vocational system of education. And this all has a bearing on how young people perceive mm. their futures. And for some young people, this has a wealth of, of, of a horizon of opportunities for them. But returning to the most vulnerable people, what we found in our research with young people in alternative provision, some of them had really refined entrepreneurial senses of what they wanted to do, self, good sense of self-management actually, mm -hmm. and lots of excitement about the ways in which they could do innovative and creative work, but those opportunities don't exist for them to do that. Whether that might be in media, for example, mm -hmm. or doing all forms of, of creative enterprise, that we still have a very, very narrow track for some young people for whom the system doesn't doesn't fit so that transition the problem with transition is not just uh, the act of making the transition but a 14 year old may look ahead to them when they're 16 and go that transition out of formal education into well at 18 now if, with the with the um mass and gcse's yeah. if you have to keep going yeah. that that actual they, they've predicted failure of transition yeah before it's even happened at that and, age. And those decisions are made very early on in the school career. As our first report that we did back yeah. in 2012 mm -hmm. when we were talking to young people about risk is what they were identifying very quickly for us. This was in, These were interviews conducted in secondary schools that one of the risks that they identified, not an adult, perceived risk but a pupil received risk, perceived risk rather, is the, the risks of having to make qualification choices very early in their school careers. Mm. And that sets their path. Mm. We yeah. never really think about that, though, do we? we, we no. the, the focus of transition is, yeah, I mean, EYFS are very, very good at transition from the home into, into EYFS, home visits, lots of, mm. you know, it's, it's very concerted, and we know that we're trying to make effort at second, primary to secondary. But actually, I, I, the, the sector I hear talk about the school to life transition most is the special education needs sector. And if you go to special schools, they're so conscious of this need to not just prepare a child for a job, but prepare them to be independent, prepare yeah. them. And they've recognized perhaps earlier that there's a, there's a need to consider that transition more rather than just exams, great, they got the exams, off they go. It's okay, what happens after the exams? Yeah. I, I think the, the whole area of pastoral development in secondary um, has been an area that's been under constant pressure mm. for so long now because the emphasis has not been on and Ofsted, Ofsted judgments have not largely been about the quality of care that's offered to children it's been about safeguarding children and it's been about educational achievement is this uh, is this school in line to get x results for this group of, of, of young people mm. and I think just going back to the, the FE point we found so often that the futures that are offered to this these groups of, of young people are very small mm. in terms of and they're and they're they're gender oriented 
amazingly. We, we've been to so many places who would say, we're doing, trying to do exciting things with these kids. And we've been to so many places where really, what do they really expect? They really expect what we, that Dave and I call hair and bricks. Okay. Girls will do that kind of related set of, of, of professions, of jobs, and boys will do the bricks part. So, it, you know, no, that's not kind of, but it, but it just gives you a kind of feel for the, f the expectation of the teacher in, or, the, or, or those who are involved in their education in terms of what the potential of that child is. And it's very difficult to find, I've, I've not seen it anywhere, I don't think we've seen, an, seen it anywhere, places where consistently they're trying to push young people to other futures than they themselves might be able to see for, you know, for themselves. Um, and that, again, is a, is a huge problem, because where do these kids finish? Well, a lot of them finish in FE, doing exactly hair, hair and bricks type courses. Yeah, and that transition beyond the final exam isn't perhaps considered, unless you're going to university and it's okay, let's hope you get into that yeah. university. But perhaps both, and I, and I guess it's the same with the transition from year nine to year 10 and key stage one to key stage two, at each transition, are, are we thinking beyond the transition itself? The immediate, absolutely. The immediate. Yeah. And, and you, mm. we did, we've not, you, did, you, you, you asked the question before about HE. Well, I mean, we've, we see lots of kids every year who have been pushed into HE, all sorts of parental pressures in particular, mm. who don't cope with HE. Not least of all because it's not actually where they want to be. Yeah. But they don't. They don't fail. They don't fail. So we've we've got this great kind of pressure now for kids, and they talk about it. I've got to get a two-one. Got to. Mm. You know, if I don't get a two-one, it's the end of the earth, isn't it? Mm. If, I mean, I've had yeah. kid, kids crying. You know, tw 20, 21 year olds crying in the office because the results didn't amount to a two-one. Tremendous pressures again. So it kind of follows the same kind of script, just different pressures. Yeah. You know, and, and different people being able to cope with them. I guess we can be. I mean, the, the picture we painted is quite a negative one, uh, and it seems, it seems that yes, schools are doing their best on a very on, on what they could control. Is there any, is there anything a school there's that sat there now and they're saying, okay, you know, secondary school, I've got my year seven cohort coming in in September. We've done the taste days. Okay, they may not amount to big differences, but I can't change the structure of my school, and I can't mm. ask my primary schools to. Do. Mm. Is your advice at that point? pastoral care is the at least absolutely. the minimum in year yeah, seven absolutely i think that's i mean stan made the point earlier on about you know the the paucity of, of pastoral care provision in schools mm. and we've got to remember you, you, you you'll know this only too well that the, the, the funding for schools now is in an almost catastrophic state with, with regard to sort of the young people we've been talking about. So the, the budgets are incredibly tight, but as a minimum, there are, there are, I think, two central messages. One is to think very, very clearly about a pastoral curriculum and pastoral support. And again, Stan was mentioning earlier on about the almost kind of lost project now from many years ago around multi-agency support and interdisciplinary support for young people. Because of the complexity of, of needs, it's not just about the, 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 the depth of that need, but the complexity of needs, then it seems to, to, to me that the, 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 the nature of a multidisciplinary, multi-professional, multi-agency work is absolutely pretty much essential. And, and I think um, something like that, we, again, we were talking about it coming up on the train, 
we've thought for a lot of years about these huge structures of secondaries, these really big schools. Mm. I remember somebody talking very eloquently about why can't we take that structure and make small schools within a big school, mm. a space and a place that's smaller where young people can settle, can find their way around, locate themselves within. That, for me, I think, would be something which we should be trying to do. I know a few yeah. schools who tried it and to great effect actually. Yeah. And it does seem to work, Leave this small school model and you have all your core subjects and your tutor time in that small school. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then obviously with your selective options, that small school, yeah. school you sort of you sort of journey out from your small school. There's, um, there's a school in Plymouth and, and one in, yeah. in Surrey actually that does this where they sort of journey out of their small school into the rest of the school. And there is yeah. a, and that is a pastoral move. And interestingly, both yeah. schools are in, in quite challenging areas. Yeah. Yep. And of course, we used to have middle schools. Mm. They've virtually been abandoned, but we used to have a, we used to have three stages. We had a prime. Not, I mean, not everywhere. They weren't, they weren't yeah. adopted everywhere. But we had a primary, we had a middle, and we had a secondary phase. And again, it's just something that, you know, that that may kind of help a lot of kids who are struggling in it, with these particular issues we talked about. Mm. Are you both hopeful about? transition and do you think from from looking at the research and looking how it's not just a problem in the UK but this is something globally that's been struggled yeah. with and we've been struggling it for a long time there's like yeah. a parting message do you, do you still have optimism even though you, you, you look at this uh, I am remain to be the eternal optimist and one of the reasons <laughs> for my optimism isn't just to do with my character disposition although my colleagues who might disagree with that is that our research is absolutely premised on the voice of young people and children. And the optimism is that I sense that schools, many schools, are absolutely keen to authentically capture the opinions, standpoints and viewpoints of young people as active researchers in their own right, of their own experience. We use a term that's appeared in Stan's literature particularly on young people as reliable witnesses, mm -hmm. which has come from, from other research where, where that seems to use. So I remain optimistic for that reason that I think young people have got an awful lot to say in a very eloquent and very, very skilled way about their own experience. And I'm optimistic about that, but I'm also optimistic about the fact that we've got a lot of teachers and, and, and head teachers and, and senior school managers who clearly are dissatisfied with what we're delivering, want to do something different, and they're trying desperately to answer the question, what would the different thing be? So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm optimistic on that count. I think we should try and share that optimism. Thank you both for coming Thank on to the Test Podagogy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.